0: October twenty-two is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenus History Podcast, episode number sixty-two: Shipley, Scopes, and Science. Last time we introduced George McCready Price, Avenus Professor and Armchair Geologist Extraordinaire. Price was the first Avenus to really embody the struggle of maintaining faith. In this modern world, he was among the first Christians to see the threat of Darwinian evolution to creation theology and the Sabbath, and that earned him some credibility. Unfortunately for Price, most creationists today are hesitant to give him his due because, well, he's an Adventist, or was an Adventist, and Adventists are weird. So let's move on and follow the five men who were told to go to the train station in San Francisco to pick someone up. This was a routine trip, but it usually didn't take five people. The five consisted of a Presbyterian pastor, a local newspaper editor, and some others. And when the day came, four of the five said they were too busy, and so the task fell on 30-year-old Alonzo Baker. He was young and less important. So if anybody was going to make time to pick someone up from the station, it would be Alonzo Baker. Isn't it heartwarming to realize that in 100 years, people still hate going to pick somebody up at the train station or the airport? Yeah, we still don't like doing that. Anyway, so it was was Alonzo Baker's turn. He's the young guy. He's got to go do the chore that nobody else wants to do. He was an associate editor at Signs of the Times, and his biggest claim to fame so far, I mean, other than a trip to Europe, had been being embarrassed in front of the whole church by John Loughborough when he was 15. I mean, seriously, Loughborough just kind of calls him out in front of everybody for, for not paying attention. Anyways, abandoned by the others, Baker had to borrow someone's car in order to make it into town. And so arriving at the train station, he was about to have what he considered to be the most important day of his life, at least one of them. He was picking up, you see, William Jennings Bryan, the William Jennings Bryan, the great orator, the guy who ran for president three times, the guy who had been Woodrow Wilson's secretary of state during World War One the guy who had several honorific titles with the word great in them. He was called the Great Commoner, which, by the way, he had printed on stationery of letters that he wrote people. And he was also called the Great Orator. His speeches were collected and sold. By the 1920s, Bryan was past his prime, to be sure. He had crusaded for prohibition and in support of a minimum wage. But his final crusade was against Darwinian evolution. It was this final crusade that brought him to Mountain View, California at the request of the Pacific Press Publishing Association. Well, it was the request and the payment of, in today's prices, a few thousand dollars in speaking fees. Let's not forget that, okay? But it's still significant that a man like William Jennings Bryan would be okay accepting an Adventist invitation. Might not have Happened that way in the 1800s. Well, anyways, when Brian arrived in Mountain View, he asked for a bath. So Alonzo Baker set him up with a room and a shower at the Pacific Press boarding house. All cleaned up, the aging Brian asked Baker to help him get dressed. Baker considered this experience a great honor. A memory he cherished for the rest of his life. Now, if you read Adventist accounts of Brian's visit, it kind of sounds like he traveled across the country just to see them. But the truth is that Brian was touring California on behalf of John W. Davis, a doomed Democrat running for president. Well, I mean, he wasn't doomed. His bid for the presidency was doomed. Brian didn't care much for Davis, but he did like Davis's pick for vice president because Davis's pick for vice president was Brian's brother, Charles. In attendance at the speech was the former senator, James D. Felon, best known today for his campaign slogan, Keep California White. How's that working for you, buddy? Anyways, Alonzo Baker tells us about the honor of getting Brian dressed, as well as what happened after the speech, but he remains silent on the speech itself, maybe because it was... Easy enough to pick up a newspaper and read about it if you want to know what Brian said, but perhaps also because his speech was a mixture of anti-evolution religion and party politics, right? This was a campaign tour, after all. And this mixture of religion and politics would probably have horrified the first generations of Adventists. Anyways, Brian blamed evolution for pretty much all of society's problems. This was the moral argument against evolution namely that survival of the fittest, quote-unquote, is a terrible way to live. But Brian also blasted different politicians, including people in his own party, for the rise of crime in prohibitionist America. The answer to our political problems, said Brian, is the Bible. He declared that he'd rather keep the first three verses of Genesis than every other book in the world. It was a rousing speech, that it was. Thirty years later, in 1956, old George McCready Price was asked a question. Question, I am told that you were a friend of William Jennings Bryan. Is that true? Now, this question suggests a couple of things. First, that by the mid-1950s, at least some Adventists still held William Jennings Bryan in high regard. Second, that a legend had been growing about Price's relationship with Bryan. I mean, they're basically asking, is it true, Price, that you were once friends with the great orator? Now, Price set the record straight when he said they were not exactly friends. One of the reasons why they weren't closer friends will become apparent by the end of this episode, but it is telling how this legend grew around Price and Brian within Adventism. The 1920s and 1930s were an age of Adventist giants, a, a modern re-founding of Seventh-day Adventism in many ways, a second coming, if you will. But for there to be any of that, you need generational icons in William Jennings Bryan and George McCready Price, these guys with three names that I have to keep saying, they were icons of fundamentalist Adventism. Now, Bryan's speech in Mountain View, like many of his speeches, stirred up a hornet's nest because that's what fundamentalists did. A San Francisco rabbi published a full-page article attacking Brian and other anti-evolutionists. The rabbi skewered the ignorance of the anti-evolutionists before concluding, quote, evolution is the 20th century religion, end quote. Well, be that as it may, the rabbi still thought anti-religion atheists like Thomas Huxley were going too far, The path forward, he believed, was between the fundamentalists and the atheists. Now, one of those anti-religion atheists had been stirred up by Brian Stop in Mountain View, and his name was Maynard Shipley. Shipley had founded the Science League of America weeks before Brian's speech with the goal of fighting fundamentalists like George McCready Price and saving, I guess, the teaching of evolution in public schools, preserving that promoting that now in spite of this goal i'm sure the science league of america would still make for a better movie than the justice league i'm just saying if you're going to make a movie about a league i still think the science league of america would be better sorry dc fans anyways people sometimes say that there can be fundamentalists on the left as easily as there can be fundamentalists on the right okay well i don't know maybe but i i think we should stick closely to a historical definition of fundamentalism Okay, people today, they talk about Hindu fundamentalism and Jewish fundamentalism and all. I am i can't quite go that far. I'd like to stick to this historical definition of fundamentalism, which is uh, a conservative Christian war on modernism. Call it something else if you want to refer to, uh, to to Hindus or Buddhists or whoever. Now, if liberals could be considered fundamentalist, then Shipley would be one of them. Okay? Shipley's rhetoric would have made fundamentalists proud if he wasn't fighting against them. So one time Shipley wrote, quote, the armies of ignorance are being organized, literally by the millions, for a combined political assault upon modern science. For the first time in our history, organized knowledge has come into open conflict with organized ignorance. End quote. Have a lot of Christian friends there, Shipley? Anyways, an academic writing in the American Journal of Sociology would later review one of Shipley's books, and from his perspective, right, this reviewer's perspective, he lamented that Shipley never seemed to want to understand fundamentalists, but only wanted to show them in the worst possible light. Those who want to ridicule fundamentalists will love his writing, the reviewer was saying, while those who, quote, seek a proper historical understanding of the movement are left with a piece of interesting yet incomplete journalism, end quote. In the wake of Brian's visit the Pacific press capitalized on the attention. They printed articles in the Signs of the Times like they were launching aircraft off a carrier, which I get is a reference they would not understand in the 1920s. But just hang on to that, okay? It'll make sense in, like, 15 years. Anyways, Leon Smith, Uriah Smith's boy, lambasted evolutionists for their intolerance. Quote, When the champions of evolution demand that the state shall teach their belief in opposition to mine, in the public schools which I am taxed, to maintain, they are exhibiting their intolerance. Another writer noted that a Unitarian preacher had called Thomas Paine one of America's earliest prophets, and proposed a new American scripture filled with the writings of Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson. I mean, just side note. I mean, how do you think Lincoln would feel about that? Do you think Lincoln would be good with his writings being in a new American scripture? Meanwhile, liberal churches were hosting boxing matches and movies. Oh, the author lamented, the harvest of modernism. Now, the tone in these articles was aggressive and triumphalist. Alonzo Baker boasted that recent discoveries meant, quote, the popular theories of evolutionary geology received a knockout blow to the solar plexus, end quote. Francis Nichols mocked the arrogance of scientific claims and concluded, quote, Why be overawed by such display? It will fade in a few years, and another set of theories will have to be created to light the way, end quote. George McCready Price, then teaching at Union College in Nebraska, considered universities and theology schools basically to be trash because of because of the modernist infiltration, with the result that, quote, the entire supply of ministerial recruits has become infected, end quote. Now, the only exceptions, he wrote, were the older students, whom he called, in a wonderful turn of phrase, quote, the survivors of a better day, end quote. The Science of the Times editors did manage to score an interview with William Jennings Bryan. The editors rolled some soft questions to Bryan, who was more than capable of carrying a conversation by himself. Evolutionist Bryan said, quote, certainly lack a sense of humor, or they would never be able to keep their faces straight while they are giving out such nonsense, end quote. Now, despite the cheap shots, Brian revealed the true contours of his thought on evolution. There was no conflict between science and religion, he believed. On the contrary, quote, science has rendered invaluable service to society, end quote, and scientific hypotheses should be fairly considered. What he objected to was having evolution forced into the educational system before it was, in his mind, adequately proven. Worse still to Brian was this rise of naturalism that seemed to accompany evolution. And this is what Adventist objected to uh, as well. Brian said, quote, man is infinitely more than science, end quote. So Brian's, Brian's big concern was how if, if naturalism was carried along with the adoption of evolution, then what would that do to us as human beings? Because as Brian believed, man is more than just science. It's more than just, we are more than just collecting data and, and making um, hypotheses and, and, and things like that, right? Being able to measure the world. We need religion to, to show us how to be men and how to be women. Well, this was more than Shipley could handle. Okay, Brian Brian didn't really debate, and, and otherwise he had left town. So Shipley called the Signs of the Times office to challenge the editors to a debate in San Francisco. Now, Oscar Tate there at the Pacific Press was reluctant, but he did agree to send Francis Nichols and Alonzo Baker. These were heady days for Avenus, brimming with confidence, eager to seize the cultural moment, right? Like these are these are Avenus who believe that, that evolution was receiving its knockout blow, that the science that George McCready Price and others were doing was was just was exposing evolution, right? That evolution couldn't last a few more years at this rate. They were eager to seize the cultural moment. One general conference leader whined that Avenus in the pews weren't worked up enough about evolution. Quote, it is a fact that about the time an issue of supreme importance is ready to die out, we come to life. We should strike while the iron is hot. End quote. Regarding the impending scopes trial, which we'll talk about in a minute, this GC leader proclaimed that, quote, not one of our 2,300 churches in North America should let this opportunity slip by, end quote. Opportunism has always been an Adventist specialty. If the Pope sneezes, Adventists will come out with a special book to give out. But hey, being a minority faith with a zeal to convert the world is a lot like being the youngest kid in the big family, okay? You got to speak loud and often to be heard half as much as everybody else. So Adventists did not want to miss this, this kind of cultural moment that they were in where, where every newspaper is talking about the evolution debate, and Adventists wanted to be at the center of it. They wanted to make good use of it. Now, the event Adventists were especially capitalizing on was the arrest of John T. Scopes in Tennessee. Now, avengers who opposed Sunday laws in the name of religious liberty were pushing for laws prohibiting the teaching of evolution in the name of religious liberty. Fundamentalists managed to pass such a law in Tennessee, the first one that could actually stick, that, that remained, and this led the American Civil Liberties Union to offer to legally defend anyone, any teacher in Tennessee who defied the law. So the whole thing was a sham from the beginning. I mean, the county the county superintendent of schools, a man unfortunately named Walter White. Well, he broke bad and convinced one of his teachers, John Scopes, to admit to breaking the law. I mean, whether he did or didn't is immaterial, right? He just admitted that he broke the law. And because why? Because it would bring publicity to the little town of Dayton, Tennessee, which lies just north of Chattanooga. I mean, Scopes even asked his students, he coached them on how to testify against him, all to test this new law. The superintendent conspired with a local lawyer who ended up joining the prosecution. So the lawyer agreed. Lawyer joined the prosecution. Of course, superintendent was in sympathy with the defense, and uh, they worked together to make this thing happen. It was a, it was a cultural battle more than a legal trial. William Jennings Bryan, of course, Joins the prosecution, even though he wasn't leading it, and he he begged famous anti evolutionists to come and testify. Okay, so the, I mean, honestly, when the former Secretary of State joins a trial, I mean, it's going to bring publicity, and he knew that's what he was bringing to the table. He was bringing publicity, bringing a spotlight. Uh, H. L. Mencken, the famed Baltimore journalist. Uh, he has an acerbic wit. He showed up to this sleepy southern town as well. I mean, the place was just packed with people. I mean, some were observing that it's like representatives of every single newspaper <laughs> were, were present here in Dayton, Tennessee. It was it was primetime American drama, which the rest of the world did not understand at all why Americans would be worked up about this, but it was primetime American drama. And while Americans eagerly waited for it to premiere, they could enjoy the pregame show, which was unfolding in San Francisco. Now, this debate with Shipley was never about winning an argument with a few men in San Francisco, okay? As much as the Scopes trial, it was about winning a public debate. It was a campaign rally. So Nichols and Baker had planned another anti-evolution article campaign that was going to last six months. Okay, just issue after issue after issue of Science of the Times filled with articles critiquing evolution. They were gonna, they were just going to launch that a few weeks after the debate had ended. Okay, that was pre-planned. Doesn't matter whether they win or lose. Okay, those articles are going to go out. And it worked because Science apparently added nearly 700 evangelical churches among its subscribers. Churches never would have subscribed to hear more about the sabbath or the sanctuary doctrine but to learn how to combat evolution that's what they wanted a pacific press salesman followed the great fundamentalist william bell riley to an event in portland oregon and sold 66 of george McCready price's books there these public debates were good for business and and not just for the avenists okay shipley of course wants to build the prestige of his science league of america he debated He debated William Bell Riley, he debated others to to draw attention to, to his own cause, okay? Now, whatever the judges of the debate decided, if both sides could add a bunch of new supporters, they could each claim victory, at least a little victory, in this larger culture war. Now, the debate was held at the native Sons Hall over a weekend, June 13th and 14th, 1925, Nichols, Baker, and Shipley had hammered out the wording of the two motions to be debated. On Saturday night, the motion was resolved that the earth and all life upon it are the result of evolution. Now, Baker thought he and Nichols had gotten the better of Shipley with this one because it forced Shipley to prove the motion, right? He has to prove that, li- that the earth and all life upon it are the result of evolution. All Baker and Nichols had to do was poke holes. But the Sunday motion was resolved that the teaching of evolution should be debarred from tax-supported schools. Now here, Baker admits that he messed up. They should have added the words, the teaching of evolution as fact, should be debarred from schools. Because William Jennings Bryan, after all, wasn't opposed to teaching evolution as one theory of human origins among many. But the debate was set, and Baker and Nichols spent weeks studying Up Nichols would take Saturday night, Baker would take Sunday night. Now Nichols would later admit to having read a hundred pro-evolutionist books in the past two years. Okay, you study hard when you're gonna get on the stage for a debate in front of the entire city of San Francisco. When debate day came, people packed the Native Sons Hall on June 13th, right? Which is a Saturday. You just wonder if you're an Adventist, like, how do you go to church that morning knowing you've got this big debate coming up Uh, as soon as the sun goes down? I mean, (laughs) are you just going to have a a nice Sabbath rest that day? Are there going to be some butterflies flooding around in there? The police showed up to turn a thousand people away. Okay, The place, the venue just fills up and then the thousand more people have to go back home. The rabbi I talked about earlier, yeah, he served as a moderator for the evolutionist side and two Adventists, uh served as moderators for Nichols and Baker. While the judges were determining the winners, the rabbi at the end of it all took the stage and called anti-evolutionists an enemy to America and to truth. Like I said, it was a show. The judges were judges from the circuit, federal, and appellate courts. Okay, no slouches there. And Adventist claimed victory both nights. But the judges actually ruled for Nichols the first night and Shipley the second. Not that it much mattered. When the Scopes trial kicked off in July 1925, just a month later, it captivated the nation. Just absolutely arrested the nation. They enjoyed the debate in San Francisco. Okay, actually, that was, it was a really popular thing. Um that Adventist debate with Shipley was more popular than many of the debates with famous fundamentalists, okay? It was a huge deal, but everybody knew the Scopes trial that's going to follow a few weeks after the debate was the thing, okay? Brian, as we've said, was looking to ship in some big guns for the trial, including George McCready Price, but Price was now on loan to England. Price was surely sorry to miss the whole affair, and uh, I believe that because Price during these kind of most important years in the middle 1920s just never seems to be where he wants to be if you read his letters he's like i wish i were on a dig over here can't be there i wish i could be at the scopes trial can't be there he's just kind of always not where he where he wishes he could be now i'd love to narrate each day of this trial because it's such good drama but we'll skip ahead to day seven when William Jennings Bryan himself takes the witness stand. Now, the attorney for the defense was Clarence Darrow. And Darrow was a very, very popular lawyer at this time. I mean, very, very controversial. He was an avowed agnostic, wanted nothing to do with with Christianity. And why Bryan thought it was a good idea to let Darrow question him is, is really just beyond me, okay? The idea had been that Bryan would uh in turn be allowed to question Darrow after Darrow had questioned Brian. But I mean, after two hours of Darrow's brutal bombardment of Brian, the judge realized that having the lawyers call each other as witnesses really has nothing to do with this trial. I mean the jury wasn't even in the room when this is happening, okay? It's just it's just what, for the sport of it? So eventually Brian's uh, testimony was stricken from the record, and they just realized this. You know, he's not an expert in anything. He's he's one of the lawyers on this case, and so they 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 took out his his uh, testimony, and and they decided this was a bad idea. So Brian was denied his chance to fire back, but we still have an account of of the questions and answers. Okay, so we we see that Darrow asked Brian what he knew of Confucianism and Buddhism and whether he was interested, that is Brian, whether he was interested in the history of primitive human beings and how old he thought the earth was. And Brian said he didn't care about primitive humans because, and I quote, quote, I have all the information I want to live by and die by, end quote. Now, when Darrow asked Brian if there were any scientists at all that he respected, Brian replied that he respected most scientists, right? Because you always assume most people are on your side, right? If you're a politician, it's like, you know, you believe that there's like a silent majority that's on your side, right? Same thing in kind of religion. He he thinks that most scientists are on his side and I don't know, maybe they were. But that wouldn't do for Darrow. He wanted names. So Brian gave a name, George M. Price. Now, let me give you the verbatim transcript of what happens next, so you can get a feel for the the back and forth, okay? Darrow, who is he? Brian, professor of geology in a college. Darrow, where? Brian, he was out near Lincoln, Nebraska. Darrow, how close to Lincoln, Nebraska? Brian, about three or four miles. He is now in a college out in California. Now, let me interrupt the transcript here and remind you that Price was actually on loan to teach in England at this time. Darrow, where is the college? Brian at Lodi. Now let me interrupt again. Price did teach at Lodi Academy until 1920, but that was 5 years ago by this point. Darrow, that is a small college? And then Darrow and Brian then like they argue about the size of the college and whether the size of the college matters as far as the the prestige of the professors' ideas. And then Darrow just starts over. Darrow, you mentioned Price because he is the only human being in the world, so far as you know, that signs his name as a geologist that believes like you do. Now, in response, Brian says, no, there's another scientist who believes like me too, George Frederick Wright. But Wright had died four years earlier, by the way. Darrow then played his hand when he explained. He has quoted a man that every scientist in this country knows is a mountebank, and a pretender, and not a geologist at all. Well, so tell us how you really feel about Price there, Darrow. Darrow pummeled Brian. Uh, He asked questions like, Do you know anything about where Price teaches? Do you know where Price... um, Do you know when Price wrote his books? How old Price's information is? Do you know where Price was trained? Do you know any geologists in the world who accept Price as a geologist? How old does Price say the earth is? And Brian didn't know the answer to any of these questions. I mean, it's not like you, you show up as the lawyer. You don't show up as the witness. You don't just bring all of Price's books with you and, and, and uh, have study them in preparation to answer these questions. And Brian pointed that out. So Darrow dug deeper. Darrow, do you think the earth was made in six days? Brian, not six days of 24 hours. Darrow, doesn't it say so? Meaning the Bible. Brian, no, sir. No, sir. It turns out that when push came to shove, William Jennings Bryan didn't believe the earth was created in six 24-hour days, like Adventists believed, like Price believed. Many of the fundamentalists didn't. And sure, they were against evolution, but being against evolution is not the same thing as being for creation, particularly this kind of creation, this creationism of creation in six 24-hour days, okay? So being against evolution does not mean you're for creation. And this is one of the major reasons why Price would never be close friends with somebody like Brian or many of the other fundamentalist leaders. Adventists were frustrated with fundamentalists almost as much as the evolutionists because they just didn't seem to get the point of why believing in this kind of creation was important. One of Price's non-Avonist fans, a colorful character named Dudley J. Whitney, wrote Price one time feeling the exact same way. Quote, I am completely disgusted with the ignorance and imbecility of the anti-evolutionists with hardly an exception, and I know that you feel the same way. They fight Darwinism, they quote Bateson et al., and it is all they do know. They read your stuff and yell, hurrah, and then they read an argument based on Wright's glacial flood and yell, hurrah, again. Frankly, I do not believe that the typical fundamentalist evolution fighter has any more head for science or any more ability to analyze facts than, well, I don't know then what, end quote. Wright would always be miffed that Brian had denied a belief in creationism at the height of the trial. It was to him a loss of nerve, a failure to stand firm. But the truth is that while having a shared fundamentalist convictions about the need to fight evolution, they never managed to convince fundamentalists of the importance of creationism. And while Brian and his fundamentalists achieved a small symbolic victory with the Scopes trial, I mean, it was clear that, that Scopes was guilty from the outset. I mean, that was the whole point. The trial nevertheless marked the peak of fundamentalist popularity in America. You can only ring the alarm so long before people get tired of the noise. And after the trial, Brian went to a local Methodist church in Dayton. Brian had a big lunch. called one of the local lawyers who had been helping him with the prosecution, or I should say that he had been helping with the prosecution on the Scopes case. He wanted to send the lawyer a few copies of a speech he had written probably as a thank you. And toward the end of the the phone call, didn't last very long, but toward the end of the phone call, Brian said he didn't feel terribly well after that lunch. Something isn't sitting right with him. The lawyer asked if he needed a doctor. I'll send one over right away. Oh, I'll be all right in a few minutes, Brian said. He just needed a little nap. We hung up, the lawyer recalled, and the next I heard, he was dead. The great commoner, in great order, was dead. He didn't survive a week past the Scopes trial. He was 65 years old. Now, Brian's death signaled that the popular wave Adventists had been riding had crested. No one could bring the kind of prestige and public attention to the anti-evolution cause quite like Brian could. Perhaps this is one small reason why... The Adventist growth rate began sliding around this time until the 1950s when Adventists untied themselves from the rhetorical anchor of fundamentalism. So what's the moral of the story? What do we take from this? What can I learn? Well, I guess the moral is you shouldn't take a nap after church. I'll see you guys next time. This episode of the Adventist History Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more, and it's all really cool. So to check them out, go to thehaystack.org. The Haystack, life, culture, theology, and dragons. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenous History Project. You can get access to Avenous History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews, sometimes I do bonus episodes, you know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast and I want to talk some more about it. Other times I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So. You want to go drive around new england a bit see to see the sights, and have some fun well you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter once again at project.org and we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that so just to be very 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 clear we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself